Our passage this morning deals with the reality of persecution. And Jesus' goal in these verses is not just to deal with the reality of persecution or to discuss it, but to transform our view of persecution. He wants to change our minds about how we see persecution. He wants to change our hearts about how we actually feel in the midst of persecution. Above all, Jesus wants us to see that for the Christian, persecution is a mark of God's blessing on our lives, and it's a distinct opportunity for great rejoicing and gladness, even in the midst of great pain. Now, why does he want to do this? Why would Jesus want to persuade you that there's joy to be found in the worst pains, including the pain of persecution? Well, it has a great deal to do with what the whole book of Matthew is about. The whole book of Matthew is about leading us to make disciples of all nations, to leading us to make disciples of all peoples. Matthew's constantly beating this drum of Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, He's the King who's come. And when we get to the end of Matthew, what we'll find is Jesus saying in those famous words, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples. So King Jesus is trying to make followers. King Jesus is teaching us how to follow Him. And following Him means we're going to face what He faced. They persecuted me. They will persecute you. And it means that if we're going to face the kind of persecution Jesus faced, we're going to have to have the kind of joy Jesus had. Jesus encountered persecution and was driven on through it because of joy. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame. And the Bible tells us, Christians today, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And you're not going to make it through all of your joys, earthly joys, being pulled away in persecution unless there's a joy in your heart that keeps you pressing on through those times. In other words, Jesus is giving us right now what we need so we'll make it through to the very end to be with Him. Jesus is thinking in advance of what we're going to require to make it through the tribulations without which no one will see or will enter the kingdom of God. He's giving us the guide to joy in those very times. Now, this passage tackles persecution from three angles. And there are three angles that I think make it universal. I think when we think about persecution, we often think about uh, passages that apply to a specific group of Christians we call the persecuted. It's not the way the New Testament looks at it. To uh, the New Testament, Christian and persecuted are basically synonymous. And the reason they're not synonymous in our minds is because we've changed the biblical definition of either Christian or persecution. But for the New Testament, there's really an importance of speaking about persecution to all Christians because it's something relevant to all Christians. And so our passage is going to look at the scope of persecution. Who faces it? It's going to look at the cause of persecution. Why does it come? And then it's going to look at the joys of persecution. How can we rejoice and be glad 
in the midst of it. Now many of us, the first point is the scope of persecution. The scope of persecution. Many of us, I mentioned, have a very narrow view of persecution. We hear about Christians being tortured in North Korean jail cells and we think persecution. We remember that on August 30th of last year, President Biden removed the troops, the American troops that were in Afghanistan, and really unleashed a reign of terror on the Christian believers that were there. And some even in our own midst were involved both in rescuing those who were there and being rescued out of that awful persecuted situation. And we think of that, we think about persecution, and we should. We should. But the Bible would have us think about more. It would expand our view of persecution. It would expand our view of persecution beyond just those who are martyred or imprisoned to really all of those who suffer in any of the diverse ways that we can suffer for following Christ. Look at the passage here when Jesus speaks about the scope of persecution. To what extent is he talking about? First, he lays it down as a general idea. He just gives us the category of persecution. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, who have others come against them for their faith. So blessed are all of those who are persecuted. But when he then spells out what he means in verse 11 and 12, he does not do what we do which is limit persecution to the imprisoned and the martyred. But he expands persecution beyond where we often are to even those who are spoken ill of for his sake. So he says in verse uh, 11, blessed are you when others revile you. And that word revile in 1 Peter is just translated as insults. Blessed when there's insults that are coming your way. When people speak nasty of you, You don't want to just say, that's not persecution. Persecution is only what's happening in North Korea. If you do that, you're going to cut yourself off from the strength that's being given to us in these verses. You're going to cut yourself off from the kind of gladness and joy Jesus wants to give you in your particular persecutions. So, blessed are you you when you are persecuted. What does that mean? It can mean being reviled, which is simply... uh, insulted, and then it says, and persecute and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. You know, there are many Christians who have never had anyone lay a hand on them for their Christianity. They've never been arrested for their Christianity. But their stand for Jesus has resulted in friends and family saying all kinds of evil things about them. In this congregation, we have Christians who've literally had to leave their homeland because they were Christians. And we've got Christians who don't get involved, invited to their friends' derby parties because they used to, but then they took a particular stand, say, on God's view on marriage or homosexuality, and now they're not invited where the fun is. Now, I don't deny that one of those is more severe than the other but they are both equally persecution. They are what Jesus is speaking about when he speaks about persecution. And there are many in this this very room who've, who've had strained family relationships because of their following of Jesus, 
but out of a kind of a humility. They wouldn't want to call that persecution. I mean, how do you call that? I mean, that's like the guy who stubs his toe comparing his pain to a woman who's in labor. You just don't do that. Right? But they're both pain. And here's the deal. Jesus does not share your definition of persecution if you limit persecution to imprisonment and martyrdom. You're not being humble, you're being unbiblical. And I'm stressing this because I think we're missing out on some of the gladness and the joy that ought to be coming into ordinary Christian lives because ordinary Christian lives are the ones that face so many per persecutions. So Jesus includes being verbally insulted, being spoken of falsely, certainly included in persecution would be those who are martyred and imprisoned. If we go to the parallel account, the parallel verse uh, in Luke's Gospel, where Luke is talking, in the, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Plain, and it's a lot of parallels between the Sermon on the Mount, probably the same sermon at their root. Luke expands it even more. Blessed are you when people hate you. Just, just attitudinally, there's an attitude of hatred. Many who, who first become Christians don't get any personal persecution immediately, but they, they join a sort of a, a cultural antagonism towards the faith. And, and Jesus says, you're included in that blessing. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you. Any kind of excluding. Not just the kind of excluding where you're excluded from your homeland or excluded from society by being imprisonment, imprisoned, but any kind of exclusion fits Jesus' view of persecution. Of course, no one gets to define persecution more than Jesus. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Are you hated or lied about or antagonized or arrested or threatened or harmed by family or friends or coworkers or by the broader culture? That is all real persecution. That's all persecution defined biblically. Now, why is it so important to understand? Why am I belaboring this point? Why is it so important that we understand the scope of persecution? Because if we do not label persecution as broadly as Jesus does in this text, then we will not apply the comforts that Jesus gives to the persecuted as broadly as Jesus does. That joy in Godness is for other people. And one of the things American Christians love to do is insult themselves for how everybody else in the world has it harder than they do, and they aren't living the real deal here. But, but the irony of that very reality is that actually cuts you off from the comforts that would make you stronger if harder times come. So we don't dare do it. We don't dare do it out of any kind of false humility. If we lose our job for standing for Jesus, and then out of a false humility we say, that's not real persecution, then we will not see the call to rejoice and be glad as applying directly to us. 
We will not see the promises that we will have a great reward and we will be numbered among the prophets as applying to us. And we must understand that everything from being hated to being hunted is true persecution. And all Christians, whether they are slandered or slaughtered, are called to rejoice and be glad in persecution. One more reason. I think i got a couple more, but here's one more. On top of this, if our view of Christian persecution is too narrow, too limited to just those who are physically hurt, it will undermine our assurance of salvation. It will undermine our assurance of salvation. Paul tells Timothy in the pastoral epistles, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. Okay, so let's uh, limit persecution to martyrdom or imprisonment or being beaten for the faith. How many have experienced that? No Christians here. Because it says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. And if we limit our our definition of persecution, and then we're honest with the text. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. I got this limited, narrow view of persecution. Have I experienced persecution? I must not be a Christian. But if you expand this to, has anybody ever hated you for being a Christian? Have you ever experienced any exclusion for being a Christian? Put your hand up. Oh, there's a few Christians here this morning. Welcome. And all of a sudden, the comforts of gladness and joy that Jesus wants all His people to feel are yours, and they're not just for the varsity team who are being martyred. But they're for the varsity team, who are, they're for those who are being martyred, and they're for those who are being slandered. One, one other thing I want to say, this is the last thing on this first point. Noticing the scope of persecution. Again, I'm getting this in the text. Jesus gives us the scope. Blessed are the persecuted. Who are they? They're the reviled. They're those who are uttered false things against them. Luke's Gospel. They're the hated. Noticing the scope of persecution will help us prepare for and overcome what we might call average temptations. I was talking to some brothers this week and one of them pointed this out. I thought it was very helpful. If we think of persecution as only happening when we are threatened with jail time or death, then we might not notice when a temptation to avoid persecution has come for us in much more ordinary circumstances. Right? You've all heard the kids in the youth group, you know, what would you do if someone put a gun to your head and said, deny Jesus? Well, that's an important question to ask. It's not likely to be your first exposure to persecution. And you can be all ready for that and not ready for, what are you going to do when the HR department at work has passed a company-wide policy that utterly contradicts your Christian conviction? What are you going to do? Because it's much more likely that you're going to face this from the HR department here in America than from a man with a sword, though that's not out of the question. James Montgomery Boyce tells of a time a man came to the great church father Tertullian in the first centuries of the church 
The boy says, the man's business interests had been conflicting with his loyalty to Christ. And the man told Tertullian of the problem. He ended by saying, what can I do? I must live. And Tertullian said, must you? Tertullian understood what we need to understand in our day, that persecution and difficulties may come if our government becomes tyrannical, but difficulties may just come in the course of ordinary business in which our livelihoods depend. And we need to be prepared and be preparing those. We need to be preparing each other, our, our gospel community groups, our, our interaction with each other on Sunday morning needs to be such that we're aware that we're in a culture that's going to place pressures on us to compromise. And we're helping each other to identify those points of compromise and to fight them and to embrace the blessings of persecution. Secondly, we've looked at the scope of persecution. Let's look at the cause of persecution. Let's look at the cause of persecution. Now this is very important. These verses do not speak to all persecuted peoples. These words of Jesus are not universally applicable to all persecuted peoples. Christians are not the only persecuted people in the world. We've got the Uyghurs right now in China. There's instances right now in the news, you may have seen this, where a Jewish community has got a lot of heat on them for firing a transgender teacher. But that transgender teacher is receiving death threats themselves. I'd say the transgender teacher in that situation is also a persecuted person. The Jewish community that fired them are being persecuted for their convictions. I may strongly disagree with transgenderism, but I'm not aiming for death threats. You've got people in all walks of life, many different groups in the world, are being persecuted. This verse is not a blanket we can throw over all of them. It is a specific verse given to the followers of Jesus. There's something happening in Christian persecution that's not happening in other persecution. And it's namely this. It's for Jesus. It's persecution for the sake of His name. It's persecution because of identification with Him. If you may have conservative political views and you may get heat for those conservative political views, do not immediately jump to this is for Jesus. Do you see what this verse says? Look at it. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness sake. That is, blessed are those who are persecuted because they're doing what is right. And of course, this comes to us in Matthew chapter 5, and so we have to say it's doing what's right biblically. We're talking about, everybody's got a standard of righteousness. Christians aren't the only people on earth with a standard of righteousness. Everybody's got a standard of righteousness. When Jesus speaks of righteousness, the king in the Old Testament, the king of the world, when the one who authored the Bible tells us that we're blessed if we're persecuted for righteousness, he's talking about his righteousness. The righteousness he commands. 
But he makes it even more explicit. If you go on to the next verse, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So it's not just sort of a, a raw sort of I'm for the Ten Commandments. And if you're against the Ten Commandments, then I'm being persecuted in a, in a Matthew chapter 5 way. No, it's not that at all. It's, it's the persecution that comes to those who are identifying with the one who died because they'd broken the Ten Commandments. It's, 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 the, it's persecution that comes because of our identification with the one who died for sinners. It's persecution that comes, that, that comes to us as the Beatitudes are being formed in our lives. The poor in spirit. We have to take these things in context. The poor in spirit. The mourning over sin. The hungering and thirsting after righteousness. The merciful. The peacemakers. This, these are promises for you, Christians. It's Christian, it's, it's, they're promises made to all those who believe in Jesus. In the same way that the whole world mourns with their, when there's death, but Christians mourn in a different way. We do not mourn as those who have no hope. We do not get persecuted in the same way. We get persecuted and receive particular promises from our Savior. We're not the only people on the planet getting persecuted, and we should actually be a people who want all people not to be persecuted. We're not out for persecution. But we also have something wonderful that the reason we get persecuted if we're walking in faithfulness is not just because, but because of our identification with Jesus. And these promises are specifically for that people. Now, I probably actually need to even say this. Not all Christian persecution is blessed. That's right, isn't it? Thank you, Patty. That's right, she said. And I agree with her. Not all persecu Christian persecution is blessed, is it? Christians can be, I think the technical term is idiots. Right? And, and you can get persecuted for being a fool, and it's not going to help the cause if you're like, I'm feeling the blessing. Hey, I think you're doing this wrong. I just got joy like a river. We'd like to cut off your joy for a minute and have you reconsider the situation. And Peter speaks about this, doesn't he? Peter speaks about this. You're going to see it in this passage I'm going to read. One of the things I haven't had a chance to preach going through the Beatitudes, and I wish I'd had more time to focus on this, but I'm just going to give it a little mention here. I have been so struck over the last number of weeks by how deeply influential the Sermon on the Mount is on the whole New Testament. I, I, had, not, I had not seen it before. The, 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 uh, the ways the New Testament authors write, I mean, this is going to sound so dumb to even say it, it's like they'd been listening to Jesus. And I've just seen that more clearly than I've ever seen it before. And, and listen to some of these, listen to the way Peter speaks. You, you'd almost think he'd been hearing it from the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Where do you get that? 
If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Meddler. Getting in where you don't belong. Oh, I wish I could read every one of you John Calvin's chapter on politics. It, it just reads like a tract for the times. Because in it, Calvin basically articulates, and I should tell you this, if you think, how is this relevant? There are many historians, there are historians that have argued that the most influential person in American politics is a Genevan reformer from the 16th century, John Calvin. The ideas that he put out into the world as he read his Bible came to deeply shape this nation we're in right now. And one of the major things Calvin said was, if you are not the magistrate, you should not constantly be critiquing what the magistrate does. Now, that, now, now that's hard to apply in America because there is a sense in which we are the magistrate. We are the leaders. We, we get to devote and decide. But let me remind you that we only vote and decide every few years. And this is not a carte blanche for just overriding and demeaning and degrading every single thing that comes from our leaders. What kind of environment does that create? It can be very difficult to function. You imagine trying to govern that sort of people. I realize there's balance to everything I'm saying, but here, here's where I'm really going, because there is a place in these United States of America for that free speech and that critique and that running elections, that's all good. But I tell you what, I hear more and more thought that would lead Christians to take part in violent overthrows of our government, and I don't hear a whiff of it in the New Testament. Not a whiff. There's these wicked governments in the, old, in, in, in the New Testament, and what's Paul's, if, Paul's gonna, if you could summarize the Pauline teaching on our attitude towards, say, like Nero, who, just for the record, was bad. <laughs> Sum it up in one word. Submit. Second word, honor. I know there's more we could say. There's more to say, but I don't know that what I'm saying is getting said. There's a submission and an honor that's appropriate, and there is a uh, pursuit of revolutionary activity that will be all the wrong kind of meddling and should not be called Christian suffering. Christians are much more likely and almost always in their right when they're suffering under wicked government than when they're violently overthrowing wicked government. More could be said, but I at least wanted to get that out there. You're welcome. Thirdly, Let's notice the joy of persecution. 
the joy of persecution. Seen the scope, reviling, martyrdom for sure, imprisonment, speaking falsely. It's the scope, hatred included. And then we've seen uh, the cause. The cause is for identification with the suffering servant. That's the cause. I'm so poor in spirit, trying to make peace, hungering for righteousness, it results in a collision with the world. And that's the kind of persecution that Jesus calls blessed. But thirdly, notice the joy. Notice the joy of persecution. Jesus calls us to a striking and shocking reaction to persecution. We are called to rejoice. The, the word literally means to be in a state of happiness. We are to be in a state of happiness when we are persecuted. The word is literally the opposite of weeping and lamenting. When the prodigal son returned to his father after his rebellion, the father tells us it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Jesus is telling us that gladness should mark us when the lost are saved and also when the saved are persecuted. And we're not only rejoice and be glad, but he actually gives us another word. Sorry, we're not only to rejoice, but we're also to be glad. And to be glad, listen to this definition of the word glad from an excellent dictionary. To be exceedingly joyful, exalt, be glad, overjoyed. And you know, this is what happened in the New Testament, isn't it? This is not pie in the sky stuff, right? Do you remember what happened when the first Christians were persecuted? Go read your Acts 3, 4, and 5 and see the first onslaught of Christian persecution in the New Testament. And, and, and read about the early believers being forbidden for preaching in the name and beaten. Stop it! And let me reinforce that with a beating. What do we read in Acts chapter 5? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We count ourselves blessed the more we avoid persecution. Which unlike the New Testament authors means we're not as saturated with the Bible. They counted themselves blessed when they saw themselves included. I must be being like Jesus. I'm on the same path Jesus was walking. And it's amazing that I've been counted worthy of suffering for his name. Peter actually describes whole congregations as being dominated by this. Here's how he describes the congregation he writes to in 1 Peter. You rejoice, though for now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And you go and you look at the context of that, and it's clear that some of those trials were coming to Peter's church through persecution. The writer of Hebrews says the same things of people who were being jailed in his time. He says, recall, this is Hebrews 10, the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew 
that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. When we go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy all the ingredients for that dream kitchen, we should thank God that we've been blessed. And when someone attacks our home because we love Jesus and ruins all the ingredients for that dream kitchen, we should count ourselves blessed. How do you rejoice in the midst of persecution? Because it hurts. Let's not pretend. It hurts. One of my favorite Christy Fullerton quotes, just because we know the meaning of suffering doesn't mean it's not suffering. You say the same thing. Just because you know the meaning of persecution doesn't mean it's not persecution and suffering. But how do you get to joy in the middle of it? How do you get there? And how do we prepare ourselves so that if it increases, there's more joy, not less? Jesus gives us two reasons for rejoicing. Two reasons in the text. I'll share them with you and then I'll sit down. The first reason he gives us for rejoicing is for this, for your reward in heaven is great. Do you see that? He says, rejoice and be glad. Here's the reason. Here's the reason. It's not because persecution's fun. It's not because anyone likes being in jail when they could be with their family. It's not because anyone likes having eyes rolled at them and being made to feel a fool. It's not because of that. There's no joy in the actual persecution itself. The joy is that yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're going to heaven. You're going to see God. You're going to receive mercy. You are going to be satisfied after a life of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. All the treasures of the kingdom of heaven are coming to the one who is persecuted for standing with Jesus. John D. Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men of all times. In today's dollars, Money Magazine says he was worth $340 billion. Four times the worth of Bill Gates and still edging out Elon Musk by a cool $90 billion. At the time of Rockefeller's death, the general public did not know how much he was worth. And as you can imagine, they were curious. Kent Hughes writes, when John D. Rockefeller died, the public became understandably curious about the size of the famous man's fortune. One reporter, determined to find out, secured an appointment with one of Rockefeller's highest aides. He asked the aide, the aide how much did Rockefeller leave behind? And the man answered simply, he left it all. That's the case with this world's fortunes. Big or small, we leave them all behind. But for the Christian, that's not the end. For the Christian, we will die and be rewarded with material and relational wealth in heaven. Sweet fellowship with God and His people in a place where Main Street is paved in gold. For the Christian, to die is gain in every imaginable way. Jesus gives a second reason why we should rejoice. Second reason why I should rejoice. Someone rolls their eyes. You realize you're not going to get the promotion. You realize you're not getting invited to that event. You realize you're going to jail. What do you tap into to have joy? 
One, I've been counted worthy of this. I'm going, I'm going to the kingdom of heaven. Two, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we are persecuted for Jesus' sake, we show that we are on the same team as Moses, who was persecuted by Pharaoh, Elijah, who was persecuted by Jezebel, Jewish priests persecuted by Jeremiah, Jeroboam persecuted Amos. We're on that team. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but people love to be associated with greatness. Like people will tell you like, one time I played a game of pickup football with a guy who knew Tom Brady. You're like, you've made my day, thank you, that's awesome, right? Or back in high school, before he was famous, you know, I played with so-and-so. And everyone's got their little tangential connection to awesomeness. What persecution is, is it's an exclusion from everything good in life. Exclusion from family. Exclusion from a promotion. Exclusion from the things we celebrate. I got into the school. No, you didn't get into the school. Exclusion from food. Exclusion from a homeland. Persecution is all about exclusion. And if you face that exclusion, Jesus says, I want you to know who you're included with. You're in with the all-stars of the Bible. This is what they did to the prophets. You are on the same team as Moses, the same team as Paul, the same team as John the Baptist, the same team as Isaiah. I mean, it's amazing to read your Bible and just look at these greats and then to think, if I am a person who is persecuted for Christ's sake, I'm on the exact same path as these kingdom-bound heroes. It's important to watch who your heroes are, isn't it? And if, you're, if your heroes are all people that are pleasing in this world, then when you're no longer pleasing in this world, where are you going to go? But if your heroes are men who the writer of Hebrews would say, men of whom the world is not worthy, then the day you face persecution, big or small, is the day you go, wow, I have been counted worthy to walk in such a crowd. The leader of which is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. Emmanuel, the persecutions are broader than we give him credit for. And seeing that brings all of us into a greater inheritance of joy. We want to guard ourselves that the reason we're suffering is because we're identified with Jesus. But when we are, any persecution that comes our way is one more reminder that the kingdom of heaven is ours and we're walking there with the prophets who went before us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, we plead with you to give us joy and gladness in trials that may come to us, persecutions that are ongoing, or in persecutions that we need to relook at and think about how they really were your good blessing on our lives. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.